Thank you for listening to CFB Talks Digital Assets. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. It is not intended, nor should it be considered an invitation or inducement to buy or sell any of the underlying instruments cited, including, but not limited to, crypto assets, financial instruments, or any instruments that reference any index provided by CF Benchmarks Limited. This recording is not intended to persuade or incite you to buy or sell a security or securities noted within. Any commentary, interviews, and discussions are opinions only and should not be considered a personalized recommendation. Please contact your financial advisor or professional before making any investment decision. Some of the underlying instruments cited within this recording may be restricted to certain customer categories in certain jurisdictions. You're listening to CFB Talks Digital Assets, the home of informed conversation about crypto for institutions building the future of finance, presented by CF Benchmarks. I'm Ken O'Delaga, Head of Content, and I'm joined by Gabe Selby, our Lead Research Analyst. Hi, everybody. Thank you very much for joining us for another episode of CFB Talks Digital Assets. I'm Ken O'Delaga, and I'm joined by my colleague over there in New York, Gabe Selby. Hi, Gabe. Hey, Ken. Hi, everyone. Really excited to launch into this new episode. There's a lot of interesting topics uh, to cover here, so we should just dive right in, right? Yeah, absolutely. So this episode is dedicated to the quarterly attribution report that we release every quarter, of course, covering the period of the second quarter, taking us right into the middle of the year. And uh, just a little bit about the quarterly attribution reports. These are intended as a guide for investors and our clients about how the market has performed during that period. And uh, it's a little bit deeper than that because they are based on our internal IP, um, the CF Digital Asset Classification Structure, which is a unique taxonomy for the digital asset universe akin to GICs for conventional assets. So we slice and dice the market into DeFi, a large cap, small cap, and other categories and segments. This enables us to therefore define some segments which have served as drivers for the overall market from one period to the next. So we we provide um, these QARs for our investors and our clients on that basis. But Gabe, what do you think about this idea that because it's a lagging report, uh, maybe uh, sort of like has a sort of a certain lack of value. I mean, I don't necessarily agree with that, but what is your counter for that? Well, inherently, it is a performance review. As you mentioned, we're covering the period from March 2nd to June 1st. So this is an exercise that we do every quarter on our multi-token indices only. So we're not going to be doing this on our Bitcoin reference rate with the, the reference rate that we use for settling all the CME futures. This is for multi-token indices or portfolio indices that fall you know into digital asset classification structures like you highlighted there we have different you know sectors or segments of the digital blockchain economy and these portfolio indices can be broken out as such analogous to the the gix standards and for those of you who may not be too familiar with the gix or the global industry classification standards uh, that are used in traditional markets like equities basically these categories are created so you can understand what type of sector or industry the company falls under. If you look at the finance sector, for example, you have all these different types of finance companies. You have banks, you have insurance companies, you have asset managers. So 
you can break out, you know, an index like the S&P 500 index into a primary set of categories like finance or information technology or energy. And then you can filter down even to more, um, I would say, more specific uh, buckets and groups. And so RCF DAX is for digital asset classes, and it follows kind of the same principle. We use, you know, a level one layer, which kind of buckets everything up into just three different groups. And then of those three different groups, we break them out into more specific buckets as well. Um, and what you were saying about, you know, this being a lagging report, absolutely true. But it's just still important, I think, for practitioners, for investment professionals to have something that can break things out and tell a story so you you're, you have a deeper, more fundamental understanding of what's driving, you know, the markets are as we define them in our in our CF benchmarks. So that's why it's still very important. You got to revisit these things to really study them and and have a deeper understanding of the asset class. Absolutely. So you have an accurate basis for assessment of performance in the prior quarter and an accurate basis for assessment of potential future performance in the forthcoming period. I think that that makes a lot of sense. What we should get to first then, Gabe, and I think what people will be really interested in hearing, what is your overarching takeaway from that last um, QAR period? Any sort of major themes that stand out? I mean, I know that there are, but uh, what are the major ones for you? Yeah, I would say what really stood out to me this time around is how it's really been a tale of two cities for crypto. So you have Bitcoin and Ether, which are, as we know, the two largest by market cap uh, tokens by a considerable margin, um, basically performing identical over the last rebalance quarter. So they each rose, let's just say around 15%. And then you have the rest of the universe. So these other altcoins, you might say, which severely lagged. So what sticks out to me is just how narrow the breadth was in this last the last three months. So yeah, I think if we dive a little bit deeper into what's going on today or what happened, you know, recently with the regulatory headlines that have come across, you can kind of see this dynamic kind of play out when you look at what happened with Coinbase and the SEC with their Wells notice in March, shortly after that time period, you start to see this divergence between the two tokens that are the largest and the most decentralized. Most professionals would say Bitcoin is a commodity. They're very certain of that. Ethereum, pretty close to that degree of confidence as well, but maybe slightly less so. And then there's these other tokens that have kind of fallen into the crosshairs of regulators as being unregistered securities. And so if you look at this divergence and how it's been occurred, you see the price action. It's kind of interesting to kind of extrapolate. And we won't know for sure, but you know that when you get a Wells notice from the SEC, it makes sense that you maybe see these two kind of, uh, let's say bellwether, blue chip tokens really maintain their strength while the other ones have to start pricing in regulatory risk premium into into the market. So I think that's maybe one thesis, but I guess we'll, we'll never know for sure. I'd be kind of curious to kind of hear what you, what you think too. I mean, anything else that was sticking out to you on this last uh, rebalance? No, I think it's important uh, to actually do highlight those uh, major, I don't want to say geopolitical because they're not really that broad, but they're certainly market specific, certainly financial related headlines that had an impact on our market and, you know, arguably beyond. 
So we had the whales notice, but um, as you can see in recent weeks, um, that initial opening broadside, if you like, by the regulator has metastatized into, uh, you know, its final, yeah, maybe not its final, but certainly a larger literal prosecution against the um, asset class, if you like. But let's rewind a little bit, Gabe. We had all that major, quite phenomenal action with respect to the financial sector during the rebalance period. Obviously, um, Silicon Valley Bank, the most uh, high-profile one, Silver Lake, if you like, um, uh, another one. If you want to come out of the States, you look at Credit Suisse Group. We had some something that doesn't necessarily happen that often, bank failures, potentially related to the macro environment, the tightening financial conditions, obviously tightened by central banks, having a major real-world impact. And we did see some of the impact hit the crypto asset class as well, not necessarily negatively to begin with, because there was some suggestion that Bitcoin was um, outperforming during some of the time that these things were being reported. Overall, what is how do you actually integrate, um, you know, these events into the uh, performance at the time and maybe overall? That does feel like so long ago. I mean, we're jumping back to early March here, where we saw those. I would say you could just say they're extraordinarily spectacular. Bank failures. I mean, no one probably would have guessed, you know, these these names would just be shutting down, you know, basically overnight. So it really did have a material impact on digital assets. And like you were saying, it wasn't necessarily bad. Uh, the reason is, is because if we take an approach of looking at, you know, what could potentially drive the crypto market, I think what you saw in that time period was a repricing of the Fed's uh, expected policy, monetary policy decision making. So as these banks one by one were kind of, you know, ending or, you know, coming under regula regulatory oversight, markets were shifting their bets and saying that the Fed's going to have to cut interest rates. And that really boosted Bitcoin prices. Yeah, at one point, Bitcoin surged past 30,000. And that was for the first time since June 2022. What ended up happening is you had some more inflation data come out, which was not as constructive. So the markets kind of had to reprice in, you know, not as dovish of a policy stance. So those interest rate expectations started to reverse and come back up. You also had this labor market here in the U.S., which is something that the Fed's keeping a close eye on that just doesn't want to seem to cool off. So, you know, job creation here has just been well above trend. And this is to suggest that, you know, there's probably going to be some more monetary policy tightening uh, needed to kind of cool these things off. And uh, we actually wrote a blog post about this while this was happening uh, back in March and kind of highlighted why this thesis made more sense. This blog post broke out, you know, the recent uh, Bitcoin uh, overperformance or positive price performance into two different theses. One would be, is this just an interest rate story or two? Is this kind of like the sound money thesis? And what I did is I compared the NASDAQ relative performance to the S&P 500, I believe, and also the Bitcoin price performance compared to future uh, interest rate expectations. And you could see that the NASDAQ was also outperforming, you know, more of a broader base, neutral, less growth style index, which would tell me that this interest rate story was really what was dominating. The sound money thesis, which is something I mentioned before, is something that has occurred recently. Back last year in the fourth quarter of, of 2022, we basically had, you know, with the UK prime minister stepping down, 
a lot of FX volatility with uh, the pound and the euro. And uh, there was a lot of chain activity that showed that people were, you know, maybe turning to crypto and crypto got a nice bounce when all the other asset classes, including, you know, the NASDAQ or these interest rate sectors were performing quite poorly. So there is times when this sound money kind of thesis holds, but there's also times when it might just be, you know, the discounting of future cash flows or, you know, longer duration assets like the NASDAQ 100 index kind of correlating well with the price of, of digital assets as well. No, I think that perspective is actually important. We both mentioned today that, you know, it's a lagging, it's um, that happened at the beginning of the quarter. But the point is that the important takeaway is that you factor these things in, you can plug them in to your mental model or literal model if you're using the uh, CF DAX or and, and models based on that, derived from that. And they inform you as to how much credence or weight you should give to factors like that from one period or from one sort of short term or medium term period to the next. So it is important to actually circle back and look at them and you know, appreciate you giving us that perspective. What I want to do now though, Gabe, is look at specific segments or drivers, if you like, in the QAR. And we mentioned the QAR, and of course, because they're in the quarter. Now, you've already sort of like described how Bitcoin and Ether outperformed quite strongly during the uh, the QAR period. And these had an outsized impact on the CF Diversified Large Cap Index. Do you want to give us a little bit more detail on that outperformance and what was behind it? Yeah, so at CF Benchmarks, we have uh, this methodology called the Diversifying Factor, where we create um, market weight indices, you know, on our large cap universe or on the broad cap universe. And then we, we can also apply a diversifying factor which would gain uh, a little bit more exposure to the smaller cap tokens and basically kind of boost their weights up a little bit. This is something that's pretty unique to the crypto market, where if you look at the market capitalization as a whole universe, you have um, basically two tokens that really dominate, and that's Bitcoin and Ether. The rest of them, uh, you know, they don't really have too much of a representation. And so we decided to offer, of course, a free float market cap weighted, which is, you know, purely based on those numbers and then we also have this diversifying factor type series for the large cap and the broad cap indices and what you find in periods like we, we just experienced where there's a lot of narrow breadth really concentrated on just the top two tokens is that these market cap weighted indices are going to outperform so when we look at the you know the leaders and the laggards of our series of indices you know you had the cf ultra cap five index which is a market cap weighted index on the five largest tokens, basically, you know, dominating the, the rest of the portfolio indices. And then you had, you know, the digital culture composite index, which really underperformed that one finished, you know, over 21% lower. But I would say, you know, tying it back to your original question, a lot of these other categories, it was really kind of unbiased. It really wasn't um, singling out too much. I think the layer two scalers, so these, the scaling segment, those also performed pretty pretty poorly when you compare them to the broader market. Um, but overall, I mean, it was really just singling out Bitcoin and Ether over the past three months, and the rest of them just really couldn't find uh, any momentum to get going to the upside. Sure. And so, again, this does emphasize, um, because it, it gives us precise quantification, what may be fairly obvious or something that we may have a, an easy inkling of when we look at a market, you know, market or an asset class's performance 
over a certain period. We can all say that Bitcoin outperformed and Ether outperformed as well. We may even know that um, certain segments within the market had a differentiated type of performance. But to actually pin, you know, precise quantification of metrics percentages, like for instance, looking at um, the QAR for their previous quarter game, you've written the two largest cryptocurrencies have expanded their lead on the capitalization tables in recent months, outperforming the rest of the constituents by an average of approximately 20%. So that gives you like something that you really can't do intuitively. You know, you can't do that kind of thing um, just by guessing or by, you know, slightly assessing or broad scale assessment. So that's another reason why it's important. What I wanted to um, ask you related to that game, it is about this idea of a breadth and versus narrowness. What we're seeing in the crypto market may be something which is generally something that necessarily is uh, counter to the natural development of a, an asset class, or at least counter to the long-term natural development of an asset class. Because what we're seeing is, having seen this broadening in recent years, where a multitude of additional assets and even additional segments, um, we've turned them as such within the CF digital asset classification structure, chiefly DeFi, have emerged. We saw that broadening, and now we seem to be seeing something like a further narrowing back to the largest two capitalized assets within that asset class. Have you got any sort of like insights into that? Why it may be happening, how long it may last, or, or maybe even whether it's likely to be something that persists for the for the longer term? Yeah, I think there's a few different potential theories on why we're seeing this. Typically, when if you compare this to maybe a traditional asset class. The blue chip bellwether names typically weather the storms better than the newer, smaller, capitalized companies. I think this kind of falls in well with the narrative of what you're seeing on regulatory uncertainty. I think we are heading into a period of regulatory clarity. It's going to take time. We're really just now starting to really face this these issues head on. And so with that, it does kind of make sense that the two largest, most decentralized, kind of bigger juggernauts in the digital asset universe are positioned to weather this storm better. And the major question is how long will this last? And that's going to be very tough to answer because I'm not, obviously I'm not a fortune teller, nor am I a lawyer or study these types of you know court cases. But I, I've heard anywhere from as soon as like by the end of the year to multiple, multiple years. As an investor, you have to kind of take this into consideration on what your time horizon is, how comfortable you are with the, the risk, and size your position accordingly. I think the, a lot of these outside altcoins, whatever you want to call them, are pretty crucial for the blockchain economy. I mean, I, I've, I've spent um, some time just kind of looking at what's been happening with the layer twos and really kind of emphasizing the importance of the scaling segment on the longer term success of decentralized protocols because when you saw the DeFi space grow exponentially you know a few years ago and you saw you know the emergence of digital artworks through nfts it was pretty clear that these uh, layer one blockchains like ethereum um, were experiencing a lot of network congestion um, this was leading to very expensive, very slow transaction times. 
and the future probably is going to look where going to turn to um, maybe these these roll up type solutions where you can batch these transactions down onto the blockchain and create you know a more cost efficient, faster uh, throughput for users in the real world. And that's all about building the real world use cases. I mean, that's the perfect example of you know a segment that is is probably pretty critical for me. It's not a question of whether these blockchains will exist. It's just the need of the regulatory clarity around the tokens. And that's what we're we're going to get. And that's something we talked about in our outlook. But we're going to be finding this out as we kind of delve down this path that we're on right now. Absolutely. Let's hope so. We, we get at least some clarity from the forthcoming months. I want to talk about something that's positive, overall positive, I'd say, with respect to the performance of the asset class within the quarter. Uh, and that is the something that you do mention within the QAR report, Toge. Um, digital assets demonstrated their capacity for asymmetrical upside return potential. So I want you to define precisely what you mean by that. Maybe you want to specify certain segments or maybe even protocols, and then maybe broaden that out um, in terms of that particular characteristic as a potential differentiator and attractor of investors um, going forward. So I think, you know, it's important to highlight that once again, we're seeing this occur um, through the crypto market cycles. They tend to have these 70, 80, 90% drawdowns. And then this new cycle kind of emerges, emerges. And I think this is a very important key characteristic for uh, someone who's trying to maybe enter the space. So um, it, it's really critical to understand, you know, asymmetry, which is the ratio of upside versus downside. And for crypto markets, you know, the history people could argue is relatively short, but so far has demonstrated, you know, a more asymmetrical risk return profile, meaning that there's been more upside to the downside. This year-to-date performance that I highlighted in the QAR is something that it's pretty big in contrast when you look at the chart. You have digital assets as measured by our diversified broad cap index, which again is putting more weight into the smaller cap tokens as we know would detract performance are still up around 50% year to date. Um, and that's also being primarily driven as we could probably guess by Bitcoin and Ether. But also these other categories year to date are still you know mostly higher. But just to add a little bit back to what we we're talking about on why this is important, Asymmetry and this type of risk return profile gives an investor an advantage because you don't need to size your position too high. Meaning that if you have a globally diversified portfolio, if you were just to take one or two percent, add it to you know maybe a blend of you know Bitcoin or Ether, these assets, these digital assets, have historically had a pronounced impact on adding risk-adjusted returns over time. It's something that we highlight in our monthly market review. We have a sharp ratio chart basically highlighting Bitcoin, Ether versus global equities, global fixed income, global commodities. And on a risk adjusted basis, yes, they're more volatile, but they've they've accounted for that additional risk. I think it's just about understanding how the asset class can be very volatile, how it can also provide sizable returns to the upside throughout these cycles if you have a longer term perspective and also if you manage your risk accordingly and don't allocate too much into it. Yeah. I want to talk about the two OGs or certainly the one OG and it's um, still upstart, you know, second largest uh, capitalization sized uh, asset. 
So obviously Bitcoin and Ether, because specific things that happened within the quarter related to them. We're going to talk about Bitcoins, the advent of BRC20 tokens, uh, the and you know and ordinals, and with Ether, which I think we should start with actually, Gabe, the major network upgrade that happened during the quarter, the Shanghai upgrade, so-called Shanghai upgrade. I know it's got a technical term, but that's basically how it's commonly known. Can you give us um, some indications of why it was important and some of the impact? Talking about Ether's Shanghai upgrade first. Yeah, so the the network achieved another milestone here, and that can be summarized as you know a feature that is important for long-term holders of Ethereum that are providing or that are acting as validators on the network. So that's those are the fo- folks that are staking their Ether tokens on the network to process transactions. Um, they now, for the first time, are able to withdraw the staked Ether off the network. So before it was really a one-way street. You'd pledge, you'd stake your your Ether on on, on the validator network, and uh, you couldn't take it off. As an investor, you know that creates a, a risk. Obviously, um, not being able to access your funds. So there was a lot of bearish takes on basically once this upgrade was rolled out, you'd see a tremendous withdrawal of Ether, almost like it was if it was like these folks would just start selling it and converting it to USD or USDT. I don't know some some other thing, right? They'd just be swabbing it out. And sure, yeah, there's there's withdrawals happening on the validator network. There's also uh, Ether coming in, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to convert your your Ether into another token or into fiat. Um, it just really is an added bonus, an added feature for folks that are in that community. So I think it's it's clear that, you know, that's why this was bullish and it's a, it's a great thing to have. Now for, you know, Bitcoin, this is something that I think is interesting and worth highlighting in a sense that you have this new BRC20 token standard, which is enabling immutable information to be stored on the Bitcoin blockchain uh, for the very first time. Just just back up a tiny, tiny little bit, Gabe. A really, really simple way to explain it for the simpletons like myself. BRC20 sounds very much like ERC20, which a lot of people will be familiar with, right? The ERC20 token standard on the Ethereum blockchain. Tell us how BRC20 standard is similar to and sort of echoes the capabilities and functions of the of the one on the Ether blockchain because I think that helps to explain it a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's just about I think being able to store other additional things on the blockchain. So it's a block space, right? And when you think about Bitcoin as a blockchain, it's very uh, kind of centered on its store of value, its sound money uh, principles. Um, its ability to transact peer-to-peer, but it wasn't so much designed to store other information. So when we saw a developer create the BRC20 and the launch of these ordinals, you know, you've seen this information uh, that's being stored on the Bitcoin pl- uh, blockchain primarily be used for holding non-fungible tokens, mostly artwork, right? And this is something that I think theoretically makes sense if you look at it from a perspective of, well, Bitcoin is the most battle-tested, uh, longest history blockchain that exists. And if you want to store something on a blockchain that's going to be around for the future, you know, it probably makes sense for people to have interest in store things like NFTs, digital artwork on the Bitcoin blockchain. So yeah, it's had, I'd say, some significant impacts on things like uh, processing fees, uh, network traffic. There's been a lot of activity because of this. 
And that's caused a lot of backlash. I think a lot of folks um, were, you know, not unhappy to see uh, the, the slowness of the network congestion or the increase in transactions. But what you did find is a little bit of reprieve for the mining sector, which has been, I think, pretty, pretty beat up over the past 18 months. And now it had a little bit of a windfall here, which has kind of settled back down. But, you know, I think that's just something to follow because if you do see more projects build on the legacy, you know, OG Bitcoin blockchain, um, it's definitely going to probably, you know, be significant for for the network overall and and, and people who are users of, of Bitcoin. Yeah. And, and during the quarter, we did we all saw when I say all, I mean, all of us fanatics saw, you know, the BRC20 hype particularly the ordinals hype and the fact almost the novelty that you could almost get the nfts on bitcoin oh you can now have nfts on bitcoin amazing but um in terms of the materiality for price apart from the upsurge you may have seen in the weeks that this thing became a bit more public how much materiality substantial long-term impact on the price do you anticipate game i mean that's yet to be seen i think it's pretty tough to extrapolate it out too far you know, if you look at Bitcoin mining revenue over Bitcoin price, there there is kind of a relationship with that over the long term, but it's tough to know which tail wags which dog. And I think that, you know, for some of the folks that were always kind of curious, how would the network sustain itself in the future once all the Bitcoin has been mined and once we've hit that supply limit? Um, well, you know, I think it's, it'll be interesting to see if the development of other things on the Bitcoin blockchain will create, you know, more use cases, more uh, incentive for people to sustain the network and through via transaction fees and not just uh, minting blocks. So this is something that is, you know, to be determined, but it's still important to kind of highlight because you can extrapolate, you know, this out many different ways. And we just are probably gonna have to wait and see, you know, how the community kind of continues to develop on it. No, it's a really important way of looking at it, actually. Appreciate that. So let's uh, sort of like um, do a quick fire, you know, to round this off, Gabe. What was, if you can talk about it in those terms, the top performing asset during the QAR period that you reviewed? So yeah, the, the top dog was Bitcoin, rising over 15%. Don't have the exact figure in front of me, but let's just, let's just stay there. Yeah, I was aware of that. I mean, I was pretty sure that that was going to be the answer. But uh, the, the sort of irony is not going to be lost on a lot of people who have seen all sorts of like um, massive surges of um, this coin and that coin, Doge, maybe not so much during that quarter, but certainly in others and, uh, and other coins uh, during the quarter. So how is it that we've arrived at this situation where the OG outperforms the entire market of highly volatile, both on the upside and downside, upstarts. Yeah, we, we, we did kind of cover this a little bit before, and I think it is kind of falling into a series of all of the things that are happening right now in crypto markets where there's still we're still in a period of, of a lot of uncertainty. And these uh, more blue chip bellwethers like Bitcoin rising over 15% and Ether almost rising 15%, but like let's just say a little over 14%, basically an identical return. Um, outperforming the rest by a substantial margin. So we, we may continue to see this dynamic play out. You can follow it by using our indices. You can look at, you know, our Bitcoin prices, our Ethereum prices, our Ether prices, 
and we can uh, just compare them to some of the other segments. Uh, you could look at the, maybe the CF Diversified Broad Cap Index, which will overweight smaller tokens and see that divergence. There's also um, you know the NASDAQ Altcoin Index, which we are a calculation agent for. That includes just altcoins. Another great tool to just gauge this dynamic and see how this plays out while you know the regulatory headline risks continue to kind of come through. So um, yeah, I think that's that explains a lot of it. Sure. And um, for the worst performing uh, single asset during the quarterly attribution review period? Yeah. So the uh, Algorand, uh, the ticker Algo, um, was the worst performer um, and has been kind of a laggard for maybe a few months now. It's been dogged by some uh, some headline risk over its classification standard as well. So um, all these names are, um, I think, really feeling the pressure here. So, Gabe, thanks a lot for that take on the uh, quarterly attribution report. Um, it's an invaluable piece of um, research that um, you can't really actually get from any other provider to have you with us to explain the minutiae of it and sort of some key takeaways that people should really pay attention to. That's, um, that's pretty amazing as always. And it's worth pointing out that uh, the quarterly attribution report does sit within a broader range of research and content that we produce here at CF Benchmarks starting with our newsletter, which comes out every week, containing all the latest CF Benchmarks news, any new indices that we may be publishing, any new client news that we have, and anything that we think is important for the institutional crypto asset industry. Then, of course, we have our monthly market report, which basically summarizes the performance of our flagship portfolio indices. Then we wrap it all together at the end of the quarter in our quarterly attribution report, basically covering the main drivers of the crypto asset universe uh, during that quarter. So go ahead and subscribe to ensure you don't miss out. Having said all that, it's um, time for us to wrap things up. We really appreciate you joining us for another episode of CFB Talks Digital Assets. I've been Ken O'Delager and I've been joined by my colleague Gabe. Thanks a lot, Gabe. Thank you, Ken. And we'll see you all again for the next episode. Thanks a lot and see you again.